Welcome to a year in the life of a seahorse. Over the course of this series, we'll be speaking with Karen, a Wisconsin woman who discovered she inherited the CDH1 gene mutation, which led her to make some life-changing decisions in regard to her health and body. Spending a little over a year with Karen between September 2020 and November 2021, we learned about this gene mutation, its impact on stomach and breast cancer, the lifestyle changes associated with it, and how the seahorse is the unofficial mascot for people who have had a total gastrectomy, as seahorses don't have stomachs themselves. In our second episode, Karen spoke with us in early January 2021 about what the experience was like of having a total gastrectomy and how she navigated the first days, weeks, and months of living without a stomach. Thank you for being here again, Karen, and and continuing to share your story and and sharing this next chapter of your story. Um, So to catch everyone up, you're three months out since your stomach removal surgery, Talk about the time leading up to that as you traveled to the National Institute of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. Since I traveled by myself initially without my husband, I will admit I was a little nervous uh, going out to Maryland without him. But of course, as soon as you're on the NIH campus and going to your doctor appointments, everything is so back-to-back that time just goes by really fast and you don't really notice. But I did get to stay at the on-site lodge that they have um, for patients and their families uh, who are actually going to be there for a little while. I did meet up with a friend, Angela, uh, who also uh, has had the same type of procedure and she was a lot farther out than me. Um, So we got to hang out for a couple days, kind of talk about things. So at least I had um, somebody to talk to (laughs) while I was out there face to face. Um, I did talk to my husband and kids every day until um, Eric actually arrived into town, but it was a lot of emotions going into it. I mean, I went in and out of depression. You know, I would try to find humor in the situation, but but the day that Eric flew in, it, it was nice and calm and we could share some good laughs. I uh, had some amazing Italian, <laughs> a lot of Italian. Um, the day before I got admitted to NIH, it was good just to be able to have some quality time with him alone because he's been my rock throughout this entire process. The emotions of getting admitted to NIH, I, I was nervous, but once I got settled in my hospital room, things weren't too bad. Um, kind of stayed in my room most of the time. I indulged in a lot of their food from the cafeteria. I can't recall every single thing I had. And I wish I could remember what my last meal was uh, the night before surgery. But the day of surgery, that that had a ton of emotions going into it. Why don't you tell us about the day of surgery from the morning before heading into NIH to when the anesthesia put you to sleep in the OR to when you woke up from your surgery? So the morning of my surgery, I had to wake up. I I forgot if there was a specific time I had to be up by. Um, Had to take a shower, had to use the HyvaCleanse surgical soap during my shower. I was told that my husband should be able to get to the hospital by like 9.30, 10 o'clock and be able to see me. And especially since this is the the world of COVID, um, 
patients and visitors were not really allowed to see each other. So the only way I was able to see my husband while I was at the hospital was the day of surgery, and that was it. So he was able to come and see me before surgery, uh, which I actually didn't get brought down till almost 12 o'clock, 12.30. So he had been sitting in the waiting room for quite a while, um, had been wondering where I was, what the status was. I actually took a nap <laughs> during that time frame, so I felt bad I wasn't responding to him as quickly. When they took me down to the um, OR and got me in my bed, uh, that's definitely when the emotions started to really hit. Um, when the nurses were taking care of me and getting me prepped, um, the anesthesiologist was there talking, um, then I definitely started breaking down, um, having some emotional crying spells. Uh, Eric was finally able to be brought back to see me. I, we didn't get to see each other very long. We thought we were going to see each other a little bit longer. Um, but the anesthesiologist did give me an anti-anxiety medication. And within a minute, I was not crying anymore. I was happy. And then I don't remember much once they wheeled me into the OR, uh, the operating room. Coming out of surgery, very groggy. I just remember Eric was there. And uh, he ended up coming with me to uh, my recovery room. And... Uh, we got to spend a little extra time there. The nurses gave him the okay to to stick around for a little bit. But honestly, I really don't remember much about the first day um, being so drugged up, uh, coming out of the anesthesia. Um, I remember being on the phone with the kids that night and kind of talking, but I, I was dealing with just... You know, it's even it's even really kind of hard for me to remember what it all felt like. It was an interesting sensation to wake up and know that I now have this gigantic wound pack on me. So I, I, I got cut about four inches from my sternum down to a couple inches above my belly button. But I had a big strip with um, a wound vac on there, and I had no idea what that was. So... I got to learn, um, essentially, was to try to help my larger incision heal a little bit faster. Um, my physician had to actually cut me open up a little bit more because my liver was slightly enlarged, and they had to kind of work around that. So it, it was a little bit of incision pain, but it wasn't terrible. Um, my epidural was definitely helping with the pain for that portion of it. Sleeping was interesting because they had you on a very high angle during your hospital stay and had to have uh, compression, like air compression things on your legs to help try to prevent any blood clots from forming. So there was a lot of stuff going on. And uh, forget trying to get any rest. Uh, the nurses came in quite often at the beginning. Um, I swear it was every couple hours. Somebody was in there taking some type of measurement, taking blood, checking just everything, all my vitals and such. The longer I stayed in the hospital, I, it was less time that I actually saw them. So I got a little bit more sleep every day. All right. So you don't remember much from the actual day of surgery. Uh, what was the rest of your stay like at NIH? And how was the recovery during that time? What were the highs and the lows? So the day after surgery, they required me to be awake by 7 a.m., and I had to move from the bed 
to the side chair because they said that they wanted the surgical team to be able to see that I had moved and gotten around. That wasn't too bad. Uh, getting out of bed was probably the most challenging, again, because of the incision and lack of muscle I could actually use to get out of bed. So that wasn't terrible, uh, trying to shift and move around to get comfortable in the chair, um, had a little discomfort. But right away, they did want you to walk on the first full day after surgery. I think on that first day, I only maybe did two laps or so the first time I walked. Um, I believe I did walk a couple of times that day. The nurses said that I actually was doing pretty good, uh, considering that I just got out of surgery the day before. Um, but every day, I definitely added more and more and more laps. I think it was by day three post-op that I was um, actually walking the floor on my own without any of the nurses to watch me. I felt really comfortable doing that. I think it was day... It might have been day three or four that they started introducing clear liquids. So I was able to have some jello. I had some um, soup broth. And uh, I believe I was able to start drinking one of their protein shakes as well because I really wanted you to try to get some type of fluids in. Uh, that wasn't terrible. I was able to get things down okay. Then the next day, they kind of wanted you to go on to softer foods. So I had tried doing oatmeal and mashed potatoes, and I, I definitely struggled um, to get more than a couple spoonfuls in over an hour period of time. Again, they still wanted you to drink like the protein drinks and um, add, try to get as many calories in as possible. And then um, the first day I could probably, I, I was able to do solid food. They actually had also weaned me off of my epidural at that time. So I struggled a little bit that night and um, like I had a lot of nausea, a lot of pain that was starting to, to come, but it was more the nausea. And I remember that Saturday morning, you know, I had, I tried to do eggs and a banana and within an hour, I was not feeling good at all. And I actually started to get sick. Um, thankfully they left little trays by me because I ended up throwing up in them. And I did not realize that was going to be the downfall of my day or the start of the downfall of that day. It was not comfortable. I felt completely nauseous. Uh, they tried giving me multiple different types of anti-nausea medication, and one specific um, one that they put in my IV actually did work and hold over for a little while. Um, I did wake up again in the middle of the night. Again, really bad nausea, um, feeling terrible. The, the physician that was on call uh, was a student physician, so he... Yeah, I could definitely tell he didn't have too much experience yet um, working with these type of pa you know patients who have gone through a gastrectomy. So he seemed a little bit more concerned. But uh, Sunday morning when my um, surgeon came in, you could just tell that he's seen this type of thing before and essentially said it was probably just my body adjusting to getting off the medication and that most likely things were going to be fine. I wasn't throwing up bile. I wasn't bringing up bile. It didn't seem like there were any leaking issues in the esophagus um, junction that they had done with the small intestine. So they were definitely monitoring it. 
but he wasn't concerned and he was sure to be right because within a few hours after he came Sunday morning, I was feeling a heck of a lot better. I actually felt like my old self, um, like a couple of days prior to that episode happening. And, um, I really did push to try to get released from the hospital that Monday because, uh, my husband was staying at the lodge and I wanted to spend at least one night with him and then go home. So I was able to go home that Tuesday. So my surgery was October 5th, and I was able to go home October 13th. So to me, I feel it was seven days in the hospital with surgery, and then uh, one night in the lodge and then home. So uh, overall, the experience at NIH uh, was very good. Um, the nursing staff was very attentive, always there when you needed something, um, To me, the room was nice and spacious, and I was able to feel comfortable to move around and have my privacy, so that was a good thing as well. Um, I will admit that first shower, after all the different IVs and the tape was off me, it felt amazing. I I, I had a chair that I could sit in, and I did not want to get out of the water. It just felt so good, and I feel like that was probably on day five maybe either day four or five that I was finally able to take a shower. And yeah, it definitely felt amazing. (laughs) All right. So after a week and a half in Maryland, you're back home now and you're adjusting to life without a stomach. What were the challenges like those first days and weeks? Upon returning home, uh, life was definitely a little bit different and I felt like I could actually take it easy <laughs> um, on myself. And I mean, I was afraid to pick up anything extremely heavy. Granted, I was told I had a 15-pound weight limit, but because of how fresh the incision was, I didn't want to take any type of chance with that. So my husband did a lot of heavy lifting. Um, prior to us going, we did prep our kids um, pretty well to be careful of mom. <laughs> don't jump on her. Don't hurt her. Um, don't throw anything at mom's stomach. So they, they were pretty well trained in terms of that. I know when we got home, my father-in-law was actually helping take care of our, our kids and the dogs while we were gone. And he was surprised to see how well I looked when we got home. And I got that comment from a lot of other people too, that they were surprised to see how well I seemed like I was doing. And I seemed very upbeat. I was energetic. The energy did not last very long (laughs) most of the time. I found that out probably the next day after we had gotten home that it seemed like 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, I would just fall asleep on the couch. Uh, My energy levels just tanked um, after a few hours of being awake. Uh, That lasted probably a good three to four weeks, I would have to say, with the the fatigue in that term. Um, After those three to four weeks, I had, you know, some energy come back. But then every once in a while, I I would just want to take a nap in the afternoon, maybe once every couple weeks or so. And I don't know if maybe it's just part of my personality. I'm not a napper. I've never been one. So for me to actually succumb to my, you know, to do what my body wanted me to do, just to sit back, relax, and recover. <laughs> that was a little difficult for me to try to handle because I'm always a on-the-go type person. I, I actually did pick up a woodworking hobby uh, during my recovery just to try to help keep my 
my mind and my mood positive to help with my recovery mode. Um, again, I didn't try to do anything that you know required any heavy lifting or anything. So it's just been a lot of small um, projects that I've been working on. And so that, that actually definitely helped uh, keep me busy from that standpoint. My husband was constantly concerned. I was possibly going to overdo it. And I would continually tell him, if I don't feel comfortable, I'm not going to. But I never felt with the things I was doing that I was pushing myself too much. If I did push myself, I might have felt like little twinges and such, but then I would pull back immediately because um, I didn't want, again, I didn't want anything to happen with the incision. So overall, recovery at home seemed to be pretty good. It seemed pretty smooth sailing. And again, a lot of people were very surprised to see I was up and about. I was being constantly active. A lot of people were surprised to hear I was eating solid food <laughs> when I came home. Uh, many of them thought I was going to be on a liquid diet for quite a while. I will admit when I came home, my diet was actually pretty decent. Um, although, yeah, I was eating smaller meals and such, but I remember one time I had an entire Jimmy John sub. So that's like seven, seven and a half inches of sub. I had that for lunch like two weeks after surgery. But then fast forward two weeks after that, everything completely changed. I was having a hard time eating more than four to five bites at a time because I would start getting nauseous. I also dealt with lactose intolerance for about a month and a half after surgery as well. So I did try like lactose pills to try to help in case I, I was ingesting anything that had lactose. I also had to learn about what hypoglycemic episodes were for me or the low blood sugar. Um, some people might say it's called late dumping, but essentially it's the, after working with my nutritionist, uh, we found out that because I was eating and drinking at the same time, even though I was instructed not to, I would occasionally eat and drink at the same time. And essentially the water or liquid was flushing all the food through my system and not getting absorbed. So all of a sudden I would get very low blood sugar episodes and I would get uh, flushing or really hot and I would almost feel like I was out of sweat, very lightheaded, heart palpitations. Um, I ended up getting a blood um, sugar monitor. Uh, the lowest I've ever seen my blood sugar get down to is 52. Uh, my husband says that he can even tell when I'm having an episode because I turn completely white. So after learning that was possibly the reason why I was having the issues, I've adjusted and I might have had two or three episodes in the last month and a half. I mean, they, they still do happen, but as soon as I feel anything a little off, I'll, I'll try to take care of it by eating something really quick. So now it's been three months since your surgery. What lessons have you learned in regards to nutrition, weight loss, and adjusting to this new lifestyle? Overall, I've lost about 40 pounds throughout this entire three months. Um, I believe I started at 220 the day of surgery, and um, I'm about 181 right now per the scale. Uh, so <laughs> that's a lot of weight to lose in a time frame. I know I'm definitely not getting as many calories at all in that um, I previously did before surgery. And again, most of the time I have a hard time eating decent amounts because I get a little nauseous at times. I hear it gets better. Everybody says it gets better. It takes about a year. So just waiting. I, I know it's only three months in. I'm still in the early recovery phase, but uh, 
I don't like food anymore. I used to like food. I miss liking it. I miss enjoying it. I know my taste buds at the beginning were definitely all over the place because things I used to like, like I loved, didn't taste the same. And that was really hard to understand why I was going through so many different emotions and tastes with things. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely been a challenge. I definitely try to eat every two hours. Um, if not every two hours, definitely every three, uh, just cause I can definitely tell when things aren't right. I used to drink coffee very quickly in the mornings, um, during the work hours. And, um, now I sometimes don't even drink a whole coffee because the taste of coffee gets too acidic for me after a while and definitely affects how my intestines feel. And, um, I just also don't drink as much water, uh, or any type of liquids. And because it's, again, it's really kind of hard for me to get that type of stuff down. That's also with the food stuff. I mean, it's all really kind of hard to try to get as much stuff in because you're constantly throwing things into your, your, your intestinal tract. And, um, I, I know I need to start drinking more. Um, I'm not dehydrated per se because I, my body doesn't feel it, it is, but, um, I know I'm definitely not drinking nearly as much as I should. So I'm trying to work on that. Um, I'm definitely constantly watching to see how much protein I'm trying to get in a day. Granted, I don't write it down, but I definitely make sure that I have some type of protein for every meal or snack that I have. Um, cause that's the very vital thing that I now have to worry about, uh, for the rest of my life. Um, I have my multivitamin that I try to take in the morning. Um, currently I am finishing up the capsules that I have, which I can't wait to go to the chewables because I, I, um, I can't stand swallowing the pills anymore. And maybe that's also with, with the liquids too. I just don't like swallowing like anything. And then, yeah, I try to remember to take my calcium supplements three times a day because th that's going to be the only way I'll be able to get the calcium is um, the one specific type of calcium uh, supplement that we're able to take. Essentially, eating right now is definitely a huge challenge, which I had heard from multiple people before the surgery, too, that the first six months are probably the hardest you're going to go through, especially the first three months might be the hardest. Yes, it's a challenge but it's a challenge you need to conquer in order to survive and to be healthy. Because if you aren't able to eat, then you're not going to be very healthy and you're definitely going to be losing a ton more weight than um, you should be. But if everything everybody has said is true, that it does get better, I, I'm optimistic that it will. And although this food thing has been a challenge, I am hopeful for the future in that I will be able to eat everything the way that I used to like. Even though I can't eat the quantity, I just want to be able to eat everything I used to and to be able to enjoy it. All right. So to bring a little levity to this conversation, uh, let's talk about that little plush toy that you have right there. Uh, so um, after surgery, uh, getting back to my room, Again, kind of groggy, didn't really know what was going on. On my tray next to my bed, um, 
were a couple of gifts <laughs> um, from the physicians, um, staff, as well as uh, from No Stomach for Cancer. Um, so there was a No Stomach for Cancer bracelet, uh, very similar to the one I always wear. Uh, it's not the exact same one, but uh, I have a ton of them. But uh, the one thing that was funny was finding a stuffed stomach toy over there. And uh, my husband, for whatever reason, decided to call it Tum Tum. I thought it was a silly name. And then we video chatted with the kids. And my son grew to love Tum Tum the moment he saw him. He didn't care that mom was on the phone in the hospital. No, he just wanted to see Tum Tum. So fast forward, you know, all the video calls that we did, Every single time. Where's Tum Tum? Where's Tum Tum? I need to see Tum Tum. We get home. We haven't even walked through the door. And my son runs up and he's like, where's Tum Tum? I'm like, thanks. I love you too, buddy. Nice to see you too. So uh, it's been literally three months of my son walking around with this at home, holding it constantly, and he sleeps with it all the time. So I find that very cute. Uh, he's now five, so it's it was just kind of a cute little thing that we have as a family. Okay, final question. Uh, again, it's been three months since your surgery, your total gastrectomy. Uh, you've had ups and downs in your recovery. So what has community been like for you um, in regards to family, friends, online connections, uh, the support that you're getting, that type of thing? When I was in the hospital, I had quite a few people actually checking in on me. Uh, one of the people was an old high school friend of mine, Beth. Uh, her and I reconnected not that long prior to my surgery. So during my recovery, Beth would send me funny videos, check in constantly. Um, I had my church girl friends uh, checking in on me often. Uh, some work coworkers were checking in on me. Uh, when we got home, we actually had set up a meal train. Um, so we would have people, if they wanted, they could sign up and bring us meals. And literally for a month and a half, almost every single day, we had somebody bring us some type of meal. Uh, most of the time, those meals would last the several continuous meals after that. So we still have a lot of stuff in the freezer <laughs> that um, we, we've frozen after we you know, had, had the initial meal. So we were very blessed in regard to that. My my husband's family was great in terms of how they supported us. Our friends supported us a lot. About four weeks after my surgery, I did get the call from uh, my, my doctor's office about my final pathology results. And they did say that they really only did the pathology out of one part of my stomach. And they did find that there were several small areas of cancer that was starting to develop. So because they had done that and they tested the lymph nodes that they had um, taken as well and those came back negative, they decided they were not going to check my entire stomach because there seemed to be so many little spots and it would take a long time for them to find out how many. So overall, um, I was given a stage one cancer diagnosis. No further treatment is really needed, just follow-up, you know, scans, blood work. So that's that. I consider myself hugely fortunate and lucky that, yeah, it sucks to be 37, have no stomach, and have a cancer diagnosis over my head. But to know that 
I have several family members who never had the opportunity to try to beat the cancer before it killed them. To me, I, I take that as a decision that I made to go ahead and try to do this prophylactically, not knowing what was going to actually come about the pathology after, but now knowing that by what I've done, it most likely would have saved my life and not have, you know, I, I could have possibly gone on to develop stage four, just like everybody else, my family who never knew about this genetic mutation. I feel like that's something I can control. The one thing that through this journey that I take huge pride in is that I want to be an advocate for those who may not have a voice or may not have a full understanding of what a CDH1 gene mutation is how it can actually affect you. And I'm really hoping that through the NIH research study that I'm part of, that me and the hundreds of other individuals that are part of it will be able to help the medical staff with their medical advances. So if I can help contribute to science and to help others, essentially, Again, that will be all worth going through what I've gone through. Great. Uh, thank you again, Karen, for joining us and telling your story and um, just being vulnerable and informative and, and teaching us you know, all about this uh, CDH1 gene mutation and everything that goes along with it. So uh, we'll talk again in a few months. Thank you for listening to A Year in the Life of a Seahorse. Please check out the other episodes to get the full story of Karen's CDH1G mutation journey. If you have any concerns about a family history of stomach, breast, or any other kind of cancer, please consider getting genetic testing to empower yourself with knowledge and help inform you on any major life decisions you need to make for yourself. For more information on stomach cancer, please visit No Stomach for Cancer's website at nostomachforcancer.org. That's no stomach for cancer, all one word, dot org. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having.